I was at an event recently where I'm trying, I have to be careful how I say this because I don't want to make it obvious where I was but I I was there in a kind of quasi-official capacity and in any case when I'm on like a guided tour I never correct the tour guide I don't like doing it I think it, first of all I could be wrong and Secondly, I think even if they are, you know, maybe there's something that I think a lot of people realize is wrong. I think what's far more important than correcting someone is respecting someone. Mm-hmm. And I think if it's not going to do anyone any harm, why on earth would you just respect this person in their place of work? I don't like that at all. But uh, he made quite a few comments, actually, strangely, about Anne Boleyn that I thought were in quite poor taste and I thought that and some of the things were certifiably incorrect but whereas I think when I was younger I would have really um, fidgeted mm-hmm. I I think I think what, it's such an interesting point you raised there Sherry because I've been bullying on this recently quite a lot when I see just how emotional people get about it and so if I was to c- compare what your friend did, which is absolutely, I would argue, the correct thing, Mm -hmm. which is you can be a bit frustrated at what's said, but you still have the courtesy as well as the intellectual solidity to sit and listen to someone that you don't agree with and be respectful. That I think is, and also it's really important to to listen to people you don't agree with. It's like, you know, the gym for your mind. It's, it's, you know, um, this is more religious, but St. Thomas Aquinas said that, you know, muscles, Sorry, wit is to muscle what doubt is to faith. You know, you become better by, by, by listening to things you don't agree with. And, but, the, but what your friend did absolutely is the correct thing. You can, I'm not saying every time I hear something that I really don't like, but I'm like filled with a sort of kumbaya spirit. Sometimes I think, ugh. But I still try to sit and listen. I think that's the most important thing. And the, the contrast to that is, Actually, funny, it happened today, just before, maybe an hour before you and I were able to meet, where I saw someone post about, I mean, really a figure in British history that I would say does not, I don't think of as provoking intense passions, but they got into a full argument on one of my accounts with another um, user. I think it was King George V. You're kidding. It was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I, this was not my bingo card for today, um, or indeed for my for this year, but because I mean, your reaction says everything. George V, the king from 1910 to 1936, is generally, with the exception of when people talk about the Roman office asylum bid, it's not one that people get particularly emotional about. But anyway, the level, like the speed with which this like accelerated into name calling and insults. And I just thought was baffling. And, and one of the things that I am so conscious of is the cruelty that we are capable of through keyboards. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I recently, yeah, it's really something. And again, I don't want to say who, but uh, a few weeks ago, I had dinner in London with a novelist. And um, they were telling me about a historical novelist, I should say, 
and they were telling me about some of the Facebook groups that had been set up against them and some of the <gasps> things that had been written and said against them. Oh my gosh. And, and I and they're a very impressive person. They're very um they're very confident and very successful and um but they were they were saying, you know, about some of the things that have been sent to them. Uh, and uh, because they because they wrote about neither of the periods that we've discussed, but they talked about you know just some of the things that have been said and done to them, and I thought, God, that's really that's actually quite sobering to realise that even very strong people can be wounded by this. And I think uh, to boil it all down to, to your point about passion, I think we have to stop falling out with people and hating people because we disagree over what happened in 1536. Yes! Or 1483. You know, like, I mean, I've... Or 1483. You know, I've had people lose it with me over dinners when I said, I think Richard III killed Edward V. And had I said that I enjoy drowning kittens, they could not possibly have been more aghast that I had said it. That they really, they almost went purple. Like they were screaming at me. And I said, just going to stop you there. Um, I have no idea who you think you're talking to, but it's definitely not going to be me. I'm not spoken to like that by anyone unless I have accidentally set fire to their home. And, and I have no interest in disliking you or you dis- disliking me because we disagree about something that happened six centuries ago. Mm-hmm. And for which there is no definitive proof that I am right or you are right. And even if there was, even if I had said something insane, like I think Margaret Beaufort flew on her broom into the Tower of London, kidnapped the children and, and took them to live in Svalbard, you know, something truly insane, you still don't need to react that way. And I think the, 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 the thing to take from history is it has already, when it happened, caused so much anguish and despair and division between people that the last thing it should do is still being still inflicting divisions between us in its death you know let's it let's enjoy from history let's feel very passionately about history i certainly do i I love history and sometimes what happens the sheer injustice of it all is enraging or devastating but above all let's take it to improve the present and improve the future rather than divide us or lead us to be sort of casually cruel because we disagree about something that happened in the 1700s. Yeah. I, I kind of relate to that because I belong to a mystery group and we were reading sure. Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay. Yes, yeah, so it's and a very good book. It is. It's like a page turner. It's like it's a mystery even though it's not. It's like it's just a guy who's stuck in the hospital looking at stuff up because he thinks Richard the Third isn't a killer. I mean, it was really it well, was fun. <laughs> yeah, it's a great book. But it's a great, great book. Boy, I'm, there was more sorry, fi- I was just gonna say there was more fights in the group over this book. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, absolutely. And I and I and I just don't think that grown adults should be flinging insults to each other over a 15th century monarchy ruled for two years or 20 years or 40 years or I don't think anything from the 15th century should be causing us to insult someone in the 21st 
I just don't, I don't agree with that. And I, my postgraduate studies were in medieval history. I think when you get into the area, obviously, of saying, I don't know, obviously, when it's if you're someone who's trying to downplay mass suffering, like, say, the day after the expulsion of the Jewish community from England in 1290, and saying, oh, it wasn't that bad, then there's a, then there's a different kind of red flag there. Then, then, you're, then you're talking about something that still hurts. very different. Yeah, that still hurts. That still hurts. And also, and also that is an aperture to, uh, I think, probably a bigger set of problems with your political beliefs. If you're trying to say the diaspora or something wasn't that, wasn't that severe. Um, there is the ghosts of that event in 1290. They are those revenants. They are still with us culturally and morally. But whilst I'm not in any way downplaying the tragedy of the disappearance of Edward V and his brother, Prince Richard, I personally, I, I'm never going to equate that with something on the scale of the diaspora. Um, and so I'm not saying nothing from the Middle Ages should still invoke an insight passion and concern and passionate interest, absolutely. And I will, I you know, love listening to someone who thinks it's Richard III is innocent because if if they are if they are respectful towards those who don't, and I'm taking the Richard the Third example because we're talking about Josephine Tay here. I, I, any of those historical big questions are are worthwhile. I think often, unfortunately, it, it's really just a cudgeled and metaphorically beat someone that you don't agree with, and that's where I think we're actually really doing history and all its complexities and, this, and the comfort it, and the comfort it gives us and what I mean by the comfort it gives us Sherry is I think of all the times in my life when a good history book has taken me away from somewhere and it's brought me to another place and another time and sometimes it's a horrifying time but it's lifted you out of a time I think that's um, in your life that you should be grateful for the work of historians and, and the, the splendors and savagery and extraordinary stories of the past but I don't think I think we're doing all of it a service a disservice when we are using it to humiliate and belittle people and I certainly know when I was younger and in my early 20s and this the the rise of the internet was happening I wasn't always very respectful in kind of the group chats and things like that I was a bit of a prick and I think you learn the lesson of there is not one single day in your life nor one single point that is made better or stronger by belittling another person mm-hmm. over the all over over anything, and in this case particularly or pertinently over history. I just think it's sad that people have the need to hurt each other, or to be have yes. some kind of superiority over another because yes. they yeah. may know a few more facts than the other person. It's like well, so cruel and stupid. It is. It's both of those things, and it, and it is also to merge them. It is stupidly cruel and cruelly stupid, uh, because I think I can tell you. Sometimes you can spot those comments. People will comment under a post that I've written or friends written, and they'll give to another commenter a very confident, slightly patronizing list of facts that they've missed and they haven't understood. And often the facts that they're very confidently giving are themselves questionable or debated. And, you know, there, there may be some historical research that's coming out that 
um, will that I know or have you know that that you know if you're a historian, your job is to keep on top of these things. And the the it's not that facts are always changing; it's that there's often. Um, so I think uh, yes, I think it's very I think it's extraordinary really to look at. Yeah, I sort of lost my train of thought slightly with that one, but I, yes, <laughs> that's sort of, I think you're right. It, it leads into, the facts aren't always, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this, Sherry, without necessarily, uh, the facts aren't always changing. This idea that there's no such thing as empirical truth, that is not true. There are facts, but they're often being, uh, there's been more meat being put in the boat. Not a perfect metaphor, but better than a dead sentence. <laughs> okay, I got um, it. I, I, <laughs> You know, so I think sometimes when people come out with these commentary like, Oh, that's not that's not really what all historians think. A little a sort of very small example. Uh, someone referred recently in a post to Anne of Cleves, mm-hmm. Henry VIII's fourth wife, and someone should have said, Actually it's Anna. She signed her name as Anna and I so I wanted to write and be like, Actually there are legal documents from later in her life where Anne is used. And also it's generally done in the history of monarchy by the princesses as the starting point that they their name is translated from their native name into the name of the country they're marrying into because part of royal marriages is the princess ceases to be off France off wherever she comes from she becomes the, the first lady of the new country that's why you have never heard of a queen you know you've never written about Queen Maria Antonia von Österreich of Queen of France. You've written about Marie Antoinette mm-hmm. or Henrietta Maria rather than Henriette Marie, Queen of England. So within some people do use the original names, but generally speaking, um, some people, for instance, if you're looking at Marie Antoinette or Catherine of Aragon, some historians use the name that they so when the, before their marriage they're Catalina or Maria Antonia. And after the marriage, it's Catherine and Marie Antoinette. If for no other reason, then it can be very confusing to readers. And also, that is what the queens themselves did. But anyway, the, the, point, the point of it is, this person was very confident that they were schooling everyone for being stupid in using Anne rather than Anna. And some historians do use Anna. Uh, the, the first one to use Anna in her book was Antonia Fraser, when she wrote a book called The Six Lives of Henry VIII. In 1992, I think, and Heather Darcy, who wrote the biography of Anne, uses Anna, and there are reasons for that. Heather's work is primarily focused on the, the Clevian or German aspects of Anna, and Antonia Fraser, in a, in a, in a move I have shared, I can completely empathise with, and I'm sure many, um, uh, many, many uh, Tudor fans can agree with too. She said, I'm just, I, I have three Catherines, two Anne's, and a Jane. Wherever I can find a way to differentiate between them, <laughs> I will do it. <laughs> so, so, and I have absolutely no problem with that incredibly welcome pragmatism. And so she picked Anne for Anne Glynn and Anna for Anna Cleve. But, but, I mean, the thing is, it can be things that small that people can correct over. Uh, likewise, it can be bigger things. So I think, always remember that you know a tiny uh, always remember too that not everyone who is commenting online is in the same place 
intellectually and more important more importantly emotionally so you know this could be someone who's just going to be starting out on their their journey of interest into history it could be someone who has genuine questions and is trying to incite a conversation to educate themselves it could be someone who's quite interested in the historical period you're interested in but isn't as interested in it as you are and that's okay not everyone has to care about the same issue as much as everyone else but the other thing I think that's so important is sometimes you might be keyboard kicking someone who's had a really bad day, week, month, or year, and are really just hanging on, you know, hanging together by a bit of emotional shoestring. And you being a, a, a bit of a bully, or a bit flippant, or even cruel. And by the way, we're all capable of being rude online. Uh, you know, I'm sort of, I'm not the... Um, I'm not the, the finishing school uh, perfect coach on this. I certainly have been guilty of it. But I'm always trying to tell myself, no matter how irritated you get, remember this person might be having a really, really bad day. And the last thing they need is someone they've never met making them feel like a fool or making them feel less than. Because we're all capable of inflicting that kind of embarrassment. I think it's really unfortunate when, when our better angels don't win out. Yeah. I think the important thing is is that history is so you can learn. History is so you mm. can increase your knowledge and expand and learn about different countries and different time periods. And also, you were talking about um, reading history as a comfort. To me, it is. And it's like time travel. You pick up a book about Anne Boleyn and you're back in that period. It's it's a great thing. And stop making it like, I don't know, uh, if I'm right and you're wrong and therefore you're an idiot. I just, yeah. that kind of philosophy is beyond me. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's where we are, I think. It's not just in history. It's us in so many ways. These things are just apertures into broader social trends. Oh, that's yeah. That's where we are. Yeah. With, with politics, religion, um, you know, and I've seen people who would say, like, I would love, you know, a conservative thing, I would love to sit down and have a debate with a really intelligent, you know, liberal who doesn't sort of name calling, and vice versa, progressives or leftists or liberals saying, I would love to sit down with a proper libertarian or conservative and have a conversation. I think you don't vote. You, you're you saying that. You think, you truly believe that you, you do. But I've seen you when a really smart conservative or a really good faith liberal has come to have a conversation with you and you've lost your mind uh, and you've immediately gone to name calling so I think that is where I think a lot of us despair of that that trend politically I think very few of us are actually prepared to do the work of listening to the other person and, mm -hmm. I, and I see that I see that across the spectrum uh, it is uh, refusing to listen is very much a bipartisan issue and I also and I also think it is it happens not just in politics, it happens in history and literature and all these kind of things, where we simply seem to have become more intolerant. And I do think, we were having a little bit of a discussion before we started recording, and just for listeners, I think we, you know, we were discussing a little bit about maybe the chimera of technology and the fact that it's not actually bringing us closer. And I was so interested in, a, in an article, I read, I think last year, perhaps the year before, by Monica Lewinsky, where she made a point that had stuck with me and I was thoroughly convinced by, which was 
I, she feels that the internet has created the modern day equivalent of the stocks <laughs> in the in the village Times Square, and that we like to put people in them for sins, real or imaginary, and help them with things and humiliate them. And in fact, I think to kind of go to the point of history, in many ways, we are taking one of the worst parts of the past, which I think was was dimmed a little bit in the mid of the 20th century, but not by very much. Mid, sorry, late mid. And but uh, but which is the ritual humiliation of an individual by the collective, and the thrill and pleasure that people can take in throwing rotten food at someone he's brought to the village stocks isn't to be shamed. It, isn't uh, it and sad? I, and that's, that's still there. Is oh, it, of course it is. Isn't it sad? Of course it is. Because Absolutely. I was raised by a father who would talk to anyone, first of all. And he, oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. he was wonderful and he was funny and he was really, really smart. And he would sit down and talk to he was very liberal. He talked. He. I remember I was in a play, and he drove me to the play, and we were early, which is not unusual for my family. And uh, the gen, one of the people in the play was also early, and we were sitting out. And he's very conservative. My dad and he got into this conversation. It was friendly. It was. They were having fun. They. It was just a chat. It wasn't life or death. They just were just talking about, you know, politics and stuff, but they were talking about it as two intelligent people from two different points of view exchanging ideas. They laughed at the end, said, uh, see you later, and Dad gave me a kiss and left, and that was it. There was no blood in the water, yeah. no argument, and that is how I was raised. So to me, this whole way that the world has come, turned, is beyond my understanding. I, I, I simply don't get it. Well, what your father did, and what the conservative gentleman you're referring to there did, from what I can tell, is they talked to each other. Mm -hmm. And today we talk at each other. It's yeah. not the same thing. Yeah. So if you go on, so I think if you, I mean, there are very few, there's a couple of conservatives, a couple of liberals who I can think of who I would exempt from them. Uh, so it's not universal. But if I if I look at most left or right wing leaning media outlets, be that social media or more established traditional media, and if I look even at comment sections, etc., it is all preaching to the choir. It is never about sincerely trying to get in your case, you know, in, in your case, a Democrat or a Republican. Um. You're American, sorry, Sherry, aren't you? As well? Yeah, I'm an American. I, yeah. I'm not Californian. Oh, sorry. I, I just wanted to say, I didn't know whether I'm, I'm always quite conscious because, you know, I, I made that mistake once before um, with a friend who I thought was American. Sorry, not a friend, a colleague. And they were Canadian. Oh. They've been living in America. But anyway, I always think it's better. It's, better, it's always better just to ask a question mm -hmm. rather than, than, than parade on incorrectly. But anyway, sorry, to your point, Democrat or Republican. I don't see any. I don't see them trying to convince the Democrat of the benefits of this Republican position. I certainly don't see vice versa. <laughs> yeah, no. And I think essentially what you're doing is you're just mocking 
this person. Even if you look at the way it's framed, you know, so and so owns, you know, or so and so destroys um, this conservative idiot, or so and so really shows up this liberal idiot. You know, it's all very combative, and the effect of that is the voting blocks will never will not turn. That you know, there will be many, many people who. You know, a, con- a conservative party could run a potato and they vote for it, or a liberal party could run, I don't know, a can of Diet Coke and they vote for it. They will. Own- they- there's no longer any persuading people because the rhetoric of insulting people about what they think bunkers them down. It makes it personal, so it becomes a lot harder to 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 vote based on a candidate, say, mm-hmm. or maybe you know, some year. You're the pri- your priority is something that the Democrats handle better. Four years later, two years later, whatever the you know, whatever particular election cycle you're looking at, it's uh, an issue has become more important, and you think, oh, actually, the Republicans handle this one better. That used to be the way it was, mm-hmm. and I have to say, you know, uh, to, to be clear, a lot of what we've been saying is is putting the culpability onto voters, and I do not diminish that. I'm someone who thinks you know, take care of your mess own your own mistakes and i think we have we as voters have to have to you know take a large share of the blame for this but in absolutely no way do i think any of the major political parties can be let off for the blame for pandering to this and for encouraging this and for solidifying this trait as how we discuss politics and and significant issues and i and i have to say and this is simply looking really at my at the UK, which has obviously you know the central parties in London, but it also has parties that are central to each of the four nations within the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking of, of which mine is, is Northern Ireland. Um, I I'm looking I'm thinking of the, the main London political parties. I'm thinking of my own the political parties that stand for the local legislature here in Belfast. And I have to say there are no great men or women. There are no great figures coming through them that I can see. There are no people, you know, and, and what I mean by that is not since. The, the scrutiny we put politicians under is so ahistorical because many of the great political leaders of the past had, to put it mildly, questionable private lives. You know, many of them had partied themselves mm-hmm. senseless in, in the days before they, and, and you can't do that anymore. You, you're running for senator, not since. And I... But I, I don't see anyone of outsize personality who maybe has the intellectual heft, moral flexibility to, to get things done. I don't see anyone who really inspires me anymore, and I don't see anyone coming up the ranks who does either. Something like Winston and I, and Churchill? I think we're stuck in it. It's all gone. It's all those people are they, we are a, we are an age of smaller people. And part of it is that we, to go back to your early point, we like it when politicians mess up. And we like it when, and, and what's interesting to me is, it's often the politicians with the smaller sins who are the ones who are punished for. Their careers are tanked. They are humiliated. We like it when they mess up. Because so many of the decisions that they have made have messed up our lives or our country. So I understand that. But the problem with trying to hold them to a completely unreasonable, to a completely um, unobtainable standard is that eventually 
you are left with very morally and intellectually tiny people mm-hmm. whose sole, maybe not sole concern, but close to their sole concern, is getting you to like them, not admire them, not respect them. It's getting you to just like them. Or, I think more commonly, to really, really, really dislike the opponent. And, that, and, the, and I think that's how you get the system that we're in. Because I, I can't think of any single politician who really, I think, both inspires and interests me. And maybe I, I just can't think of it at the minute, but that's where I kind of am, which is sad, really sad. I don't, I, I know it's the same, well, you probably know it's the same here. Um, there's really, it's very hard because people are always looking for faults in everybody, even someone who's doing good. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody's yeah, perfect. Especially someone who's doing good. Yeah, I mean, especially it, someone who's doing good. The thing is, is that I I don't want people to start slinging arrows at me, but basically, Joe Biden in two years has done a lot of good stuff. He's not perfect. He's made mistakes. No president of the United States has ever been perfect, ever. Even George Washington. Um. You know, or Abraham Lincoln. They were imperfect people just like they are today. The thing is, look at what the person is doing, not who the person is. That's the way I was taught when I was taught about politics um, from sure. the same person, my dad and my mom. Um, but but the thing is, and this is this is my general rule. I really don't care about politicians' personal lives. I don't care right. about what they're, um, you know, what's going on uh, on the side as long as they are doing their job. And that's the problem right now. Most yeah. of them are not doing their job. <laughs> no, and I, and I don't, and I, I, you know, obviously, I mean, I, I think probably you're the same. If it's illegal, that's a completely different Oh, that's not what I'm talking if about. Is, I'm talking about like uh, affairs no, and I, stuff I, like that. I, yeah, absolutely. No, exactly. And I think that's a really good point. I'm just, I was conscious of, a, of the quote being taken out of context online, you know, that we just don't care at all. And I think you're absolutely right. It's, the distinction you're drawing between the illegal and the immoral is, is interesting because you, you specifically said adultery there, affairs, and that was kind of the point the point I was alluding to, to earlier, which is many of our great politicians and kings in the past and presidents were adulterous. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I it, I don't want to sound too much like um, a church committee member at Salem in the 1690s, but uh, it doesn't necessarily, it does, I don't really, it's not going to make me, to put it mildly, I am not going to think any more of you as a person for having had one at all. And in my private life, I have you know, it's, I'm not going to want to socialize with you, if I'm totally honest. Um, in most cases, I think, obviously, the breakdown of any marriage um, is incredibly tragic. But what I mean is, I don't have to want to, This whole thing, I think it started the start of this century. He's the kind of politician you want to have a beer with. Or he's the kind of politician you want to have at a barbecue. I have no interest in voting for you based on whether or not I like you or I want you at a dinner party or want to have a beer with you. I have friends for that. I want you to go to Westminster or Stormont or the Senate or um, Congress and do your job mm-hmm. and make my family's life easier, my country safer, 
our economy more stable. I have no interest in whether or not you are a person I want to sit down and like. That's not where I'm going with this. Right. And so I think, and if you know, there are many politicians who have male and female who have had affairs, and it has, and it has made me think, ugh, that's horrible. And I've seen, you know, in friends, I have seen the heartbreak and devastation that adultery can frequently does exactly leave yeah. the sort of the, the ashes of the ashes of a marriage or a relationship and just the sort of smoldering wreckage of hope and trust it is a devastating thing i do not diminish that in any way but i also am very conscious of the fact that i do not want to live in a country where you're fired for a morality charge like committing adultery and i think if we have that in place in business we should have that in place in politics so yeah, I, I I agree with that. I just think that is you know if you go do, if you are elected, it shouldn't be your family that is the target of other people. Yeah, it should yeah, be yeah. you, yeah, that's the fair. person who's elected, but not yeah. your family. Um, it's 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 it's, it's like um, I, I'm trying not to get into what's going on here, um, but but. It should be, it's like you, when you're elected to office, you're you're elected to a job. It is a job. Sure. Your job is to, in in our in in the U.S. to uphold the Constitution, to do your job, yeah. to uh, better the community, to make life better for the people who live here. It is not to throw mud at somebody who disagrees with you. I know that's what politics is now, but that's not what the job right. is. Correct. That's, totally agree. That's the way I feel. Um, and I feel yeah. that it we've lost that. We, it's like gone. It's like people don't seem to – I keep – I keep saying to my brother, I go, what the heck is going on with this country? I don't understand. Yeah. People care more about stupid stuff than they do about getting things done that helps everybody. Uh, yeah. it, it doesn't well, there, make there sense. Are historical, well, there are historical theories about that. that um, it, it, some people call it end of empire behavior. There's not really a, a perfect name for it. Essentially, it is the theory that after a certain period, quote unquote, great nations, the large nations with a large amount of influence, there tends to be an internal crisis of faith about what the country means. And sometimes it can be happening at a period in which the country's global influence is going into decline. It can often, more often happen at a time when a country's economy is starting to slow down. And what happens is the big systemic problems, the shift in what the very nature of this country is, or what it means to its citizens, is so huge and such an enormous question to ask, and perhaps even a larger question to answer for the citizens that unconsciously they begin to fixate on nonsense issues, often but not exclusively political scandals and gossip and smaller things 
because they are unknowingly or rather sort of um, unconsciously focusing excessively and intensely on smaller issues because the larger issues are almost too big for them to face looking at. And I don't know whether that's too neat. And like many anthropological or sociological theories, there is a chance that that is simply too neat and there will obviously be, be points to disagree with. But I do think that you can see that in a lot of countries at the minute, that there is a tendency to focus on what are in the grand scheme of things, scandals and minutiae that will divide these citizens rather than unite them. It's also very interesting that at, at, at the same time as this happens, uh, end of empire behavior, I don't really love that phrase because I think it, it, it has more of an ancient world connotation. I think it really arises from people looking at the stereotype of what was happening at the end of the Babylonian Empire in Rome. But, but anyway, um, it is also tends to be a period when we see an upswing in the number of people believing in conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. A, a particularly good period when this happened was immediately preceding the French Revolution, when all of this happened. And you saw economic downturn and you saw a massive upswing in people focusing on really bizarre things like the affair of the necklace court case in 1785 and 1786. You saw people focusing on really absurd things. But you also saw a huge upsurge in the number of French citizens who believed in, I mean, insane conspiracy theories about what was happening and that there were secret societies running everything and this by the way is not something that is solely limited to the revolutionary movement french royalists really increasingly after the fall of the monarchy in 1792 a frightening number of them dug their nails in to cling on to these conspiracy theories to explain what had happened that there were secret societies beneath the surface in french society in french um political life and cultural life that had worked together to plot to make the population overthrow the monarchy, that there had been schemes and lies and almost like unknown puppet masters pulling the strings that made this happen. Like for French royalists, they tended to believe that it was a Masonic Freemason conspiracy and and that they wanted to tear down the monarchy and also to to tear down the Catholic Church. And they cited the French revolutionary policy of the enforced de-Christianization of France that did claim many lives as proof of that. But you are also beginning to see today an upsurge in the number of people who use the most potent and most misleading words in history, which is they. They want you to believe this. Mm. They are doing this. They say not... And I always want to say, and sometimes when I'm feeling quite puckish uh, in a, or pugilistic in an argument, I will say, who is they? Mm-hmm. Who, 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 is, who is it? My dad used to say the, that. There is no they. He used to say that quite often. Yeah. Who is they? Wh- who are you they? pointing to? That's, what are you talking about? I'm sorry. To, <laughs> and do you know what? There is no they. There's not. never been a they. Uh-uh. And, the, and this whole idea of vast conspiracy theories, etc., they might sound frightening. They aren't. What's even more frightening is that no one has any idea what they're doing and that there is no grand plan and that in many cases we are at the mercy of people with no grand plan. The idea that there are families controlling banking, I mean, first of all, 
laced with anti-Semitic tropes that, it, that people who believe it either don't know about or I think don't care about. Um, the idea that there are shadowy secret societies that control the world, I think forces us, sorry, I think lets us off the hook. All those conspiracy theories prevent us from asking the, the much more mundane, much more difficult, and in the end, much more provocative questions of what are the hundreds of incremental changes that we as voters and we as readers, to get back sort of, you know, and we as thinkers should be doing to make society better, not only for the next generation, but for this one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember uh, there was a big trend because of the Da Vinci Code about the Illuminati and everybody was talking about yeah, yeah. it. And, yeah. and I'm like, it's a book. It's fiction. How many times yeah. does Dan Brown have to but, say that? <laughs> well, that's true. And, and I think, you know, the, the idea that, you know, that absolutely Illuminati became a huge thing. It still is. The other, the other example that I would cite, which I think is utterly fascinating, is there's this whole theory that I used to think was ridiculous, but I don't think it is, that the movie Braveheart is essentially responsible for the massive upswing in the Scottish secessionist movement. And that really? It essentially, that it, that it, yeah, there, I mean, that it, there was, I don't, you know, when I was really young, no one talked about Scotland leaving the United Kingdom. It was like, a, it was the fringe of fringe ideas. And there's a lot of historians here who would say you can you can date that rhetoric the the mainstreaming of that rhetoric to Braveheart because mm. it was a colossus of a hit it was just an absolute juggernaut and it embedded an idea grossly I mean you obviously should point out it's set in the reign of Edward the first in the 13th century but it's rhetoric embedded an idea grossly <laughs> misleading uh, that Scotland was conquered by England, and that and it sort of led it's led to you know this later when talking about the British Empire, it has led to this idea somehow that it was the English Empire, and that none of the other four nations had anything to do with it, and that really England called all the shots, fired all the shots, and that England was the sole oppressive partner within the four. That is simply not true. Scottish involvement in building the British Empire was as significant as uh, English involvement in it. But a lot of a lot of people think the romanticization and the mainstreaming of Scottish separatism and Scottish nationalism can be dated to Braveheart. I would tend to say that's probably a bit simplistic, but there is no denying that in the same way as you're talking about the Da Vinci Code with regards to the mainstreaming of the Illuminati as an idea, there is an element to which when a, when a book or movie is that popular, and in the case of Braveheart, I would say that's beautiful to look at with that incredible music and accent, that it, that it lets into the mainstream with very little historical context and a lot of emotional heft, an idea that becomes very difficult to dislodge. That's fascinating. I just think it's really... I love movies. I lo I'm a big movie person. Yeah, I, me too. I, 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 and I can see how movies get under people's skin in different ways. Yeah. But it's just fascinating that it can start an entire... It's a fictional movie. And it's yeah. based on, it's I'm, based on history, but it's fictional. And it's just, to me, fascinating. Really yeah. Well, 
Sherry, because I think what you're, just as you're saying that, it sort of gave me the idea. Sorry, I think I kind of interrupted you there, which is very rude of me. I was just sort of carried away by your point. I was like, this is a good one. I really like it. I think the thing that... Actually, I, I, you could even push that point and try to say to people, both people who are really obsessive about historical accuracy, and of course there are discussions to be had when some of them are like wildly misleading, or in the case of, of some big shows, insulting or mischaracterizing the still living or the recently dead. That's a very different thing. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, I sometimes think when people are like, you know, complaining that something doesn't look right or something, they don't like this casting, I, some part of me thinks, good. I want you to visibly, quickly, easily remember that this is fiction. Enjoy it. Love it. I love historical fiction. Mm-hmm. But, but, if you just assume all of it, until you're told otherwise, assume all of it's fake. Just assume all of it is untrue. And then when you read a non-fiction book, assume the opposite. But I think a lot of people go into this assuming that historical fiction needs to be more true than fiction. And Sorry, more, more true than less fiction. That is not its title. The most important word in it is not historical. The most important word is fiction. Enjoy it for what it is. It's, you know, don't expect, think of it as a milkshake. Don't think of it as a medicine. Well, and you won't be disappointed. The point is about historical movies or historical television dramas is that it's supposed to be fictional that makes it, that inspires you to read the facts, to get a book, to really look into it. Or... Go ahead. Well, it can be. Absolutely, I would agree with that. I, I absolutely agree with that. No, sorry, I agree with one part of that. The bit I would disagree with, if I'm totally honest, is... You, you're not under any obligation to go and do the research oh, no. if you just no. want to enjoy that book you know so I think um, I'm just you, a, I'm, you read I'm just a nerd I like to if I if I love a movie yeah me too me and too. I, I want to read everything I can I mean I watched Wolf Hall and I wanted to read more about all the people in the tutors I mean you know sure. right I, but that's I'm me <laughs> Yeah. Oh, totally. I'm 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 on the nerd bus with you, 100%. Um, but each to their own. You know, this is sort of to, to sort of end where we started. Uh, to each their own. And I think you know one of the things that why I love the format of your podcast is the idea of reducing the structure and elevating the tone to make it a conversation over after we spent a cup of tea or coffee before we started recording. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think that's the way to do it because what we're doing is I, I hope each of us are getting back to really enjoying what we enjoy and using history to further our understanding of the present and the future mm-hmm. because I really do think history is absolutely invaluable for that and I think any politician who has not read history or studied history or understands history I think is doomed to make some truly massive mistakes because they'll fall into the trap of thinking what they're doing is original has never happened before. There's no such thing as there's no there's nothing new under the sun, as they used to say. And I think and so I think history is invaluable from that perspective. But I think from a reader's perspective, you can be as you can be a big nerd like you or I, or you can be a casual reader. Enjoy each and every second of it. Mm-hmm. Because I think history is to me both a warning and a thrill and a terror and a joy and I just think take the enjoyment with you as you go in whatever way you want to do that 
Right. Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with just having fun. I, that's not what my point was. My, no. Uh, no, 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 no. My point was just if you're passionate and you and you found something stimulating and you want to find out more, like, don't go on the Internet and read conspiracy stuff. Go and buy a book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. Support your authors. Go to the library if you're... You know, and also, you know, we should point out, you know, authors should get um, residuals from library loans. So, so you know, go and check out the library as mm -hmm. well. I mean, some authors really, are, you know, particularly authors who are starting out, or maybe authors who aren't, so, you know, for whatever reason, health-wise, aren't writing anymore, they'll really appreciate that. Hey, I finished Duchess of York's uh, second book. It was really good. <laughs> Oh, good. I haven't read it. I haven't read it. It's really good. And it, I didn't know it was about her family oh, until I got to the end of yeah, the book. Yeah, great idea. It was fascinating to read the end yeah. about what was real and what wasn't and what was part of her family and what was made yeah. up. It was. It's really good. So if you ha haven't gotten it, go get it. And I got yeah. mine from the library. <laughs> Fantastic. Perfect. Perfect segue. Well, yeah. Well, there's a recommendation. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to give something that's historical fiction, that's current, that's fun, and yeah, it's a, I love that. you know, yeah, I, <laughs> and I figured it was a good way to to finish up. Now, I wanted to know. Um, yeah. I know about your book about the Queen Mother. Do you have anything new that's coming yeah. up that you want to tell people? Yeah, um, the Queen Mother's uh, book I wrote about Queen Elizabeth. The Mother, do let's have another drink. Will be out this fall in paperback it's out now but uh, on December 5th I have a new book coming out in the US called The Palace 500 from the Tudors to the Windsors 500 years of British history at Hampton Court so different rooms per chapter different decades really telling the story of the monarchy and the country through different people that's so cool Court, 1495 yeah it's a great I love doing it I'm very pleased with it I'm very pleased with, with the idea that we have um, to work on it and I um, I absolutely find this such a fascinating book it's full of you know big political questions but also sexual scandals and the lives of servants as much as royalty so yeah I had, a, I had an absolutely fantastic time researching and Hampton Court is really cool because it has that Georgian section and the Tudor section and <laughs> absolutely absolutely well that was the job was the joy of it Sherry you know I start with chapter one is set in the kitchen since 1495 and then by you know chapters 19 and 20 and 21 are set in Georgian drawing rooms and staircases so yeah that's part of the real thrill of it that's so cool um and um do you have any events or anything coming up that you want people to know about uh I think I think I'll be in the U.S. for book tour in December but it's uh TBC okay so uh, but they can find me uh, on my podcast with single moment history or Instagram at underscore Garth Okay. And do you have um, a website, or is it just the, we uh, the I, where the podcast is? A website's developing, but I would head to the podcast okay. and uh, Instagram for the time being. So we're trying to get something set up to time with, uh, to, to coincide with Hampton Court's release. I just want people to be able to contact you <laughs> and say hi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, it's very kind. Okay. I just want to be sure. Thanks so much. I, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to chat with me. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so, so much for having me. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry.
Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.